Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We're exactly one week away from the election and uh, there's a lot going on in all all kinds of spheres in the in the political world. Uh, but I want to zoom in on this episode uh, and talk about uh, Prop 208 and uh, just the significance of, of 208 um, in the lead up to the election, what it means for the big picture of education, uh, funding and policy, you know, win or lose, and uh, how it might uh, affect the future of the political landscape in Arizona, uh, win or lose. I want to start off with uh, quickly talking about a, a column that you just wrote uh, about the kind of the history of education funding in Arizona and the narrative that the uh, proposition uh, supporters are kind of coming at this uh, campaign with is that um, after the after the Great Recession, there was massive funding cuts that have just never been restored by the Arizona legislature, and they have you know continued to cut education funding while also cutting taxes for um, specifically wealthy people. And you wrote a column basically saying that that's not true, that um, yes, there was cut, there were cuts to, to education funding because there was a massive recession, but that lawmakers did as much as they could to kind of shore that up. And when they, when they could, when the, when the economy got back uh, to running, that they um, invested, you know, Maybe not sufficiently from your from your mind. Uh, you've always written that they could do more, and you've advocated for a uh, um, for more revenue and, and different tax sources uh, to pay for it. Uh, but uh, you wrote that the the prevailing uh, narrative is is pretty much wrong, and that it shouldn't be this is this vote shouldn't be you know based on an inaccurate. Uh, understanding of of the history of school funding. But it seems to me that your perspective, uh, your history that you wrote is not the prevailing perspective and the point of view in Arizona. It seems like the the opposite message that the proponents of of 208 are advocating for, they they have kind of won that messaging uh, battle. Do you think that is is true? And if so, um, what do you think contributes to that, to, to their narrative being the winning narrative uh, that's shaping perception right now in Arizona? Um, I believe it is true that that narrative um, is prevailing, which is why I wrote the column uh, to try to provide the full historical context, um, which uh, in my judgment leads to the conclusion that where there's money, the legislature has made a priority of K-12 education and where there were shortfalls, the legislature has done extraordinary things to try to minimize the in- impact on K-12 education. After the last recession, they borrowed $2 billion against state buildings. They transferred $2 billion from other uh, accounts to the general fund, which is what supports education, and referred to the voters a temporary three-year, one-cent increase in the sales tax. Um, That just ultimately proved insufficient. They could have, at that point in time, referred back uh, an extension of the sales tax, and I advocated that they do that. 
at the time, but they chose not to. They did do cuts. But virtually all those cuts have been fully restored. Um, and the ones that haven't are um, due to be restored in the next uh, budget. Um, so uh, the narrative, while it prevails, uh, I think uh, shortchanges what the legislature has done. I think the reason that it's prevailed is that its conclusion uh, that the schools are inadequately funded uh, is true, um, even though their explanation about the extent to which uh, the legislature has uh, gleefully slashed K through 12 education funding is false. The bottom line is, as the proponents of Proposition 208 uh, maintain, uh, that our schools are inadequately funded. Uh, and um, I, I think people are less interested uh, in the history, although I thought it was important to put it out on the record, uh, than they are um, where we end up, irrespective of how uh, virtuous or, uh, or um, eligible for being condemned, uh, the legislature's actions might have been. The bottom line is schools need more funds. Well, how would you respond to the, um, to the fact that, you know, you get back to like 2018 and based on how the economy was going, the, the state legislature and, you know, could afford to give teachers 20% raises over the next uh, few years. They obviously could afford to do that because that's the exact plan that they put into place over the next few years, in addition to um, almost fully restoring a, di a district and charter additional assistance. But that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> they were not going to do that. They were not going to give teachers 20% raises until a massive teachers movement happened that basically forced their hand. I think it's, it's, um, that's just a reality that, that, that funding, um, increase that investment would not have taken place without that movement. Uh, what is your response to, to that argument that, yeah, they did provide a lot more money the last few years because of the massive response, uh, that you saw from, uh, from the education movement? Well, it's certainly true um, that the specific um, 20 by 20 plan by Governor Ducey to increase teacher salaries can fairly be ascribed to the pressure that the teachers movement um, uh, put uh, on the governor and the legislature. Uh, but that was hardly the only moving part. Uh, you already had had a uh, full restoration of uh, inflation funding. Uh, you had had increases that went beyond inflation funding. Uh, and you had a plan to phase in a restoration of additional assistance. Um, and if you go back and take a very long view, um, we are spending 42% more on a uh, per pupil inflation adjusted basis today than we were spending in 1980. Um, some of that has come as a result of outside pressure, but the overwhelming majority of that 
uh, has occurred from voluntary actions by the legislature uh, in response to the financial circumstances uh, that it faced. Um, so I, I would not at all argue um, uh, with the contention uh, that this specific component of the increase, earmarked teacher salaries uh, increases of 20%, uh, was a political response to the pressure that the teachers movement uh, put on. But that's not the whole of the story. Um, the, the Prop 208 narrative is, is that the legislature never does anything except yeah, in response yeah. to outside pressure. And the record just doesn't bear that out. Yeah. And that's, and, and to me, you know, being someone who was, you know, taking part in the Red Fred movement in the, in the very beginning, I think I always find it interesting to read the language that Journal Arizona journalists use to describe the relationship between this invest in ed tax uh, 208 and that movement itself. Because, you know, someone that had joined it, I saw it as, you know, just this startup group that was a grassroots bottom up group that's like, hey, let's get involved and try to do this. You know, it, it turns out that you know, they already had this thing teed up. They already had this initiative teed up, pull tested, and basically ready to write. And kind of where I personally try, started to, um, you know, have second thoughts about the about the motivations of the movement was when was when Ducey did give in and and say, okay, we're going to do this twenty by twenty twenty plan, and we're going to get teachers twenty percent raises, which was beyond even. You know, that was like the number one goal, but no one even thought it would happen. You know, people, I think people are looking at West Virginia as getting, I think they got like a 5% raise out of their strike. And so, and so my reaction was like, wow, we, the movement just won a major concession. Let's, you know, celebrate. But their, but their response was, no, no, you can't, they can't do that. We're going to strike anyways. <laughs> and so, and that's a part of history that I think, <laughs> that I think I would want to explore more is like, wait a minute, what, what is that relationship? And, um, and what was the, I don't know, what was the real motivations um, and who was actually in charge? I think who was actually leading uh, that movement that ended up, you know, making it all about 208. And this is now we're seeing the, really the fruition of that movement. Um, and it's been going for two years now. Right. So, and so, you know, so I, I see, and I don't know about kind of getting into like whether this thing is going to pass or not and, and what the effects might be uh, in other areas. But um, I guess from, from my perspective is I'm not really seeing any other sort of organized response to this, uh, to the invest, what is now the invest in ed movement. It started out as the Red Fred movement, but now they've got, you know, Save Our Schools uh, joining in as part of that. That's a huge, you know, coalition that's you know, pretty much backs Democrats. And um, I just don't see any organized response on the educational side uh, from from the uh, from the, the, the opponents of, of 208 or the, you know, the charter school movement, maybe. Um, I guess they're they're used to being in power or something. So I guess my question is, um, do you think that you know? I know you don't believe the polls are are totally accurate, and you probably think it's a lot closer than than the polls are going. But um, 
do you think that the no on 208 side kind of got a got a, got a late start in responding to this? Like, did they just think they were going to get it off on the um, again on the um, in the in the Supreme Court, or or do you think this is just hey this this thing came up now we're going to respond to it and we're going to defeat it with our uh, with our ads here. I do think that the no on 208 campaign got off to a uh, slow start. And I think there was an excessive optimism uh, that the Supreme Court would knock this one off the way that it did the last one. Um, I've got a column tomorrow, Wednesday, um, explaining why I think they made the right decision in 2018 to knock it off the ballot and made the right decision in 2020 to leave it on the ballot. Um, and the no on 208 campaign got off on the wrong start once it got a campaign going uh, by making this argument about um, only 55% of the money going into the classroom, which is unfair and politically um, maladroit because anyone who believes the schools are wasting money, we're already going to vote no. Uh, you needed to convince people who think the schools need more money that this isn't the way to do it. And uh, it's only recently that they've turned their attention to that. Um, I do think it's interesting. It is true that you don't have organized opposition within the education community to Prop 208. But it's almost like uh, Sherlock Holmes, the, the dog that didn't bark. Uh, you don't have uh, many of the mainstream uh, education organizations supporting uh, Proposition 208. Uh, you don't have the School Board Association or uh, the Administrators Association uh, or the, the School Board um, Association. Most of the uh, mainstream education organizations are sitting this one out. Um, and I think that's telling. I think there's an understanding that the ability to fight over funding and to win the large sums that have been recently uh, won, whether that's from outside pressure or, or otherwise, uh, is a result of a robust economy that's producing lots of revenue at the state level. Uh, and uh, Prop 208, at a minimum, puts that at risk. Uh, so I think there is a recognition on many of those um, organizations um, that we may be putting at risk more than uh, we're gaining for education with uh, Prop um, 208. Respond quickly to the, I've seen a lot of attacks saying uh, about the chamber uh, and, and your columns uh, saying basically, look, these guys were, these guys were saying the, minimum wage hike was going to destroy the economy. Now, now they're saying this is going to destroy the economy. They just don't want to pass anything that's going to, that's going to help people out. And they're trying to scare people by saying it's going to destroy the economy uh, and that they're basically just um, fear mongering. What's your, what's your response to that? Well, I don't know what the, the chamber said. I, I never said that um, raising the minimum wage uh, would um, destroy the economy. I said it would uh, produce a reduction in uh, employment uh, for people whose value of labor was less than 
what the um, minimum wage um, would be set at and that it would occur at the margins. I, I used a congressional budget office uh, analysis um, about what the impacts of raises would be on a national level to suggest what the impacts may be in Arizona. Now, we've had um, the minimum wage go up uh, at the same time that there was a large demand for um, unskilled labor uh, that, that bid up wages. Uh, not only in states that raised the minimum wage, but uh, states that didn't. Um, so I don't think that we can tease out those effects. I do believe that there's a growing recognition um, that our high minimum wage may affect the way in which restaurants come back uh, when we get past COVID restrictions. Uh, that there will be more of a reliance on robotics, more of a reliance on um, ordering via inter internet and a reduction in uh, the number of human beings that are employed. I mean, it's just unrealistic to say that you can require people to pay more for labor uh, than labor uh, contributes uh, in value added. And exactly where that falls at any point in time and the impact of it will depend upon the differential between what government is ordering labor be paid and what the value added is of um, some units of labor that may produce less uh, than that. Um, so, uh, and, and I've also been careful not to say that Proposition 208 will be a death knell to the Arizona economy. I've described it as a big gamble. And it is simply the case that if you look at the 10 states with the highest um, marginal personal income tax company that we will be joining, most of those states have underperformed the national average in employment and personal income growth. Um, the states that have no income tax uh, have generally greatly exceeded the national average uh, in terms of employment growth and personal income growth, as has Arizona. Um, there are exceptions. There are some high-tax states that are growing. There are some low-tax states uh, whose economies continue to struggle. Um, but Proposition 208 is a bet that we will be an exception rather than the rule. And uh, the rule is just firmly established. So I, as you know, I, I avoid uh, dire uh, overwrought uh, rhetoric. <laughs> um, so uh, it may be that others are saying this will destroy our economy. What I say is that it's a giant risk with the economy um, when we have had with existing tax rates and the reductions that have occurred, uh, one of the most robust economies uh, in the country why we would want to put that at risk for uncertain returns uh, for education um, is uh, beyond me, but um, it's a debate that's been joined. And, and I think you're correct that the no side hasn't joined it as quickly or as skillfully um, as it needed to. So I don't want to get too far in the weeds with 
what if it passes? What if it doesn't? Because we'll we'll know in a week, and we'll also know things like how it affects you know school bonds and overrides are on um, you know a lot of uh, school funding is on the ballot and a lot of other local uh, races uh, as well. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. We'll also see the the makeup of the of the state legislature, which could have a big uh, have a big impact on um, what kinds of maybe additional school funding or education policy changes happen. Um, but let's maybe take like a big picture um, prediction. Like if, if it, if it passes, what do you think are just some of the major, if it, maybe political impacts uh, on the state? Well, it certainly says that the view of political economy in Arizona is different than it formerly was. Um, it, it will be um, significant that we join uh, the states with a very high uh, marginal income tax rate uh, and a sharply progressive uh, income tax. Um, that will cause individuals and businesses um, to sort of reevaluate um, whether Arizona is a place to, to be and, and to do um, business. Um, it also will, I think, sort of cause a pause uh, on uh, what funding for education from other sources. Um, so the, 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 unfortunately, the Prop 208 advocates have oversold uh, what it will accomplish. Definitely. Uh, yeah. There's, I mean, they're saying it's going to, they're saying it's going to solve the teacher shortage. I'm like, I don't, right. I mean, I mean, look at the pandemic right now. It's like teachers quitting in the middle of the pandemic is not, I mean, I obviously think teachers should get paid more, but I mean, I, I, I don't think this will put a dent in, in the teacher shortage other than reforming other parts of, of the, but that's a, that's a whole different thing, but that's just one example of they're claiming that it will solve the teacher shortage. Right. So, and, 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 and so what, what, what does that and the fact that you have a um, high personal income tax that a lot of people think is economic damaging uh, do to the willingness, let's assume that the legislature stays in Republican hands. What does that, that do to the willingness of uh, Republican legislators to uh, continue to prioritize um, K through 12 funding from um, other uh, tax revenues and sources is the attitude. Well, we don't need to do as much in from that pot, pot because uh, we've got this other pot that the proponents claimed um, solved all the problems. Um, so I, I, I do think that there are downstream uh, consequences uh, and there will be consequences for if this thing passes, having oversold uh, it as the solution that that if we do this, we don't we don't really need to do anything more uh, rather than saying um, this is something that uh, we should do to make it better uh, rather yeah. than to solve the problems. Well, let's let's see, what if it. What if it fails? Do you think that signals um, that, hey, this is the wrong plan and let's all get together and try to figure out a plan everyone can agree on? Or do you think it's going to be interpreted as 
hey, tax, uh, taxpayers, voters think that there's enough money in education already. What do you think is the would be the takeaway if Prop 208 fails? Probably neither of those. Uh, in in 2012, there was a um, sales tax increase on on the ballot dedicated to education. It was defeated. Um, since then, there's been a dramatic increase uh, in funding for K-12 education anyway. So it, there wasn't the attitude at that point in time that, gee, voters have rejected tax increases uh, for uh, education. Uh, they must not value education as much as we're being told politically. Uh, and so we'll spend our money elsewhere. That wasn't the reaction. I don't think, however, that defeat will improve the prospects of an alternative tax increase, even though I have uh, advocated one. Uh, Governor Ducey has made it plain that he does not want to see a tax increase enacted on his watch. Uh, and so far, there's not been sufficient people in the business community uh, willing to buck that uh, to create the political coalition that would be necessary uh, to get an increase in consumption taxes on the ballot uh, and be able to pass it. Uh, and I think that a defeat would strengthen the governor's hand uh, in arguing against such an effort. So my guess is we would be stuck with prioritizing, continuing to prioritize K-12 funding from existing uh, tax sources, at least past uh, Governor Ducey's uh, term in office. Now, COVID makes the prospects of what's going to be available to do that uh, very dicey. Uh, the good news is that our economy has been open sufficiently during this period, uh, that uh, revenue collections have exceeded expectations, and um, the projections currently are that the so-called skinny budget that the legislature enacted, which was basically a continuation of all programs with some additions, the additions being almost entirely in K-12 through education, um, will be able to be funded. Uh, with existing resources. The state still has $450 million in a rainy day fund um, that can be used to supplement uh, any shortfalls. So I don't think we would be looking, unless we have an extended stay-in-home new order, significant lockdowns, I don't think we're looking at anything where we would have to cut K-12 through funding. Uh, and I think we may be looking at completing uh, the restoration of funding that was cut after the last election. Yeah. I mean, last just the last point on just mention, you know, COVID disruption is education. I think this is a major question that that, you know, officials right now should be thinking about and our lawmakers should certainly think about like pandemic is not going to go away anytime soon, you know, probably not all the rest of this year. And I, I don't think it's really acceptable just to say, okay, let's stick on our computers for the rest of the year. You know, what about next year? Is it going to go away entirely? 
you know, I think some students do well with, with digital technology, but I really, I really feel strongly as the time goes on and on that we really need to provide in-person options for students in a, in a safe way. I don't, I don't see how you can do that other than very small, you know, pods or bubbles uh, that, that are formed. And I don't, you know, I don't care if public schools do it or, or these, uh, you know, these, these other companies do it. But I just think that's, that's the only common sense way to do in-person um, learning. And I, I think that's got to be, you know, small, small gatherings of, <laughs> of students working with, uh, you know, working with an adult, I think is just for the social aspects. And, and I just think it's so important. It's kind of being, I mean, it's, it's talked about some, but I think it's being a little bit overlooked. So you, you, you don't perceive that administrators and charter school operators are looking at, at, at a, a different way to come back after Christmas? I, I Well, after Christmas, I don't know. I'm not privy to those discussions, but I, I think there is kind of, I'm even at, you know, I, I don't see... I don't see a lot of articles from from people being like, "Hey, we we need to go back to to something." You know, whether it's small, you know, I'm not saying to, I'm not saying to go back and crowd into in, into rooms, but I just think we need to be creative and say, I don't know, can we get, you know, can we team up 15 kids in a in a, in a bubble and and meet meet somewhere out even outside or I don't know. It just I just it's 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 just frustrating to me to see a lot of kids are suffering right now, um, just at home and just being isolated, you know, and, and who knows what the long-term effects are of, of all of this. And I think that needs to be, I think, um, if the, you know, if the energy was there and the consensus, I think, I think the consensus is more like, um, you know, I'm not trying to like blame, like, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of pundits will just blame the teachers unions for not wanting to go back. It's like, I don't want to go back in an unsafe crowded room with a bunch of kids, you know, necessarily. Like, but I think we could have creative ways of, you know, having pools and, um, and pools and pods. And, you know, I don't know what's, do, do you know, you how think, long is this going to last? Do, do, do you think there's enough teachers who would be willing to that's return to in-person instruction in that kind of a small scale pod or pool approach yeah i think if it was a pitch like hey these you know this is going to be our pod we're not going to go interact with different pods you know we're going to meet in this space maybe it's maybe it's in I, I haven't fully thought it through, but um, there, it's an interesting idea. Very interesting idea there. I mean, there's needs to be, I mean, you can't have, you can't have all kids just sitting in at home and they're, and there's, and they're, and they're like, they're suffering. They're not like, they're not like bored and just they're. I think kids are actually suffering and um, you know, it depends on if you've got a stable environment and you got a, a you know, there's, you know, you can talk about gaps in, in this and that, but I just think the, the, the main priority needs to be having an option for kids and, and prioritizing getting kids. Is it your sense that connected to each your, other? Is it your sense that your uh, students are socially interacting with each other outside of school? Or do you believe that they are practicing social distancing and 
isolating pretty much 24 seven. Some do. I mean, there's, there are some school, like some sports outside of the school setting that are just going all the time. Um, but those are, you know, those are people who are signed up for club sports and, and doing this or that. I think some kids get together with families and stuff outside of school hours. Um, but I think, I think a lot of kids are just, are just at home and, um, and, and are not doing well. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I think a lot of proponents are saying, oh, just go back. It's just, don't worry about it. Just everyone go back and be like normal. You know, I can see the data for that. Um, but I think it's to, to make everyone have peace of mind. I think you guys got to think totally, maybe this is not a reasonable thing to expect a, a whole public school system to be able to do. But I just think there needs to be some energy and some creative, some creative minds put together. And how can we you know, have public private partnerships and how do we get past the, you know, the very serious divides about ideology of how schools should be funded and just come together and say, we got to get a kids back to some semblance of, of normal life or socializing, you know, and, and I think you can't do that in, in a bubble sort of ways. How do you do it practically? How do you administer that? There's a lot of challenges there, but <laughs> I, I think it's a it's tough. profound, it's tough. And, and in, profound it's tough. observation and an interesting idea. Probably the most valuable part of the broadcast, as opposed to my <laughs> pontificate. Well, the effect. Well, I of think prop two two oh eight. But that's I think that's interesting too. How the funding, you know, we're kind of having this whole argument as if school is just going to go back to normal in in some future way you know it might not it might not ever um who knows so um so uh, we'll see i mean there's so much crazy stuff going on with the election we'll see um, when we come back uh our next podcast will be after the election and kind of re reacting to the outcomes uh once the results get finalized in arizona um uh, last thing sports thing uh you didn't watch the cardinals did you on sunday no i didn't oh my gosh I, that's the first full game I watched. I'm really happy I watched it. Very, very exciting game. Uh, exciting team comeback, overtime win by the Cardinals. Go Cardinals. Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on any podcasting app.